Star Tours announces the arrival of the Endor Express. Once we've had a chance to service the Star Speeder, we'll begin our boarding procedures. Thank you. Today is the beginning of a new tomorrow here at Disneyland, where the adventures will live on. Let the celebration begin. A vacation in space is out of this world. Join us now for a flight to the future on George Lucas's Star Tours. If you've ever dreamed of taking off into space, traveling at light speed, and chasing intergalactic bad guys, then Star Tours, the newest Tomorrowland attraction at Disneyland in California, is for you. Welcome to Star Wars at the Movies. Star Wars. Star Wars. Star Wars. That the movies? An international oral history of cinematic experiences from a galaxy far, far away. I know you're going to ask me all about Star Wars, and there's so much to say. And George said, well, that's great, but what can we do immediately? What can we do to get something going right now? It brings back all, first, the excitement of being in Disneyland just ups you until you're ready for something. And then when you go in there, you're sort of uh, you're sort of like up also because it's something that you probably haven't seen at Disneyland before. And then when you get into the Star Wars type of stuff, it brings back all the memories from those films. So it really puts you in these other in a lot of different worlds in a in a short time. And it you know it really all works. Designing a ride is very much like designing a movie. You do what you like, and you hope everybody else will like it. I loved it. It was the most exciting thing I have ever been on. It was really like being there. It was just the best. It was so good. I thought that it was the best attraction in Disneyland. Because it's so fast and it looks like you're really moving. My mom said it, she knows what it's like because she always rides with my dad. Hello there. Welcome to episode 14 of the Star Wars at the Movies podcast. I'm Stephen Danley, and I have to state outright that it's been a bit of a mind-bender putting this latest installment together when I think about the circumstances of its beginnings and just how much has happened since. Shortly after this interview was recorded, my wife and I welcomed our daughter and first child, and I embarked on an unexpected career shift with a new job, and then the entire outside world turned upside down, and it's still nowhere near right side up. Revisiting that night when this was recorded and the related memories of my own has, has helped me appreciate all the more some of those aspects of our life that I'm missing dearly. Seeing a Star Wars movie at the Chinese theater, going to Disneyland, enjoying a cozy indoor evening visit with family and friends. I have to remind myself that all those things will be possible again one day, and when they are, man, will it be great. For now, though, the focus is on remembering what makes these comforts and pastimes so impactful. And the opportunity to form a, a personal connection with someone principally involved with their creation is a rare and wonderful thing. I've been lucky to have gotten to know Disney legend and Imagineer Tony Baxter over the past 10 plus years as a family friend, and the number of things he's responsible for that shaped my youth, and to be honest, the kid in me that's still rampant now, it never ceases to amaze me. Fantasyland, as I've always known it. Splash Mountain. Thunder Mountain. The Indiana Jones Adventure, and perhaps unsurprisingly most of all to those that know me, Star Tours. How do you do, Harry? The passengers aboard. Prepare yourselves. Welcome aboard. For the ultimate Disneyland thrill attraction from the imagination of Disney and George Lucas. Because now the adventure is real. Star Tours at Disneyland. In all 
of the universe, there is no greater thrill. Opening January 9th. At the heart of Star Tours is a four and a half minute motion picture, and one whose pre-digital innovation and complexity, as originally conceived and delivered, deserves considerable recognition in its own right. As one would expect with Industrial Light and Magic, they did more with less. My favorite sequence from the original ride, where the, the ship completely overshoots the Endor moon and runs right into that cascade of icy comets, was apparently comprised of close to 80 separate film elements, topping the 60 different effects elements that made up the iconic swarm of attacking TIE Fighters in Return of the Jedi. But beyond that, what made Star Tours somehow even more spectacular was its perfect fusion with Disney Imagineering's ability to expand the illusion. Disney's new chairman and CEO Michael Eisner described the partnership's combination of technology and creativity as one and one equaling four, but Imagineering President Marty Sklar took it further. I'd like to say on, on behalf of our group at uh, Imagineering that Michael said earlier, one plus one equals four. I think uh, working with George and, and uh, the people from ILM, one plus one probably added up to more than four. And it was a, such a wonderful, creative collaboration, the, the give and take, the flow of ideas. Uh, Tony Baxter and Tom Fitzgerald and the rest of our group, they, they really worked so well with George and I think something magic came out of it that was beyond what either organization could do by itself. It took the talents of both parties to make the adventure of Star Wars truly real. And it was certainly real for me growing up in the late 80s and early 90s. Though a constantly running 70mm projector in a darkened space was critical to the original Star Tours, it was much more than a movie-going experience. And I have Tony Baxter to thank for so much of that. But where does an Imagineer come from? What makes them tick? The answers in this case can be traced back to Southern California in the mid-1960s. Tony grew up in Orange County and found his way to Disneyland as a Carnation Plaza Gardens ice cream vendor at the age of 17 and a half the youngest anyone could get hired by one of the park's vendors. Where he went from there is a story that many Disney aficionados are likely familiar with, but it's one that I'm nevertheless honored to have heard in person and to share here, along with his memories of seeing the original Star Wars trilogy on the big screen and bringing Star Tours to life. In the words of Captain RX-24 and Paul Rubens, Alright, on to the feature presentation. The next interview is with another Disney mastermind, Tony Baxter. He is in charge of designing Disneyland shows.
Well, I go back to before there even was a Disneyland. So, you know, movies were all there was at that point in time. And um, and then I remember getting my, I think when I was five or six, getting to go to Knott's Berry Farm. And I remember seeing the devil out in front, a little mechanical devil that powered this giant volcano. That was pretty amazing. And I think probably the first film I remember just being awestruck by was The Ten Commandments. I mean, I love the Disney films. And, and The Ten Commandments came out in 56. So... The next big thing for me was Sleeping Beauty and probably The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, Ray Harryhausen's absolutely amazing stop-motion animation. And so he became kind of a, another Disney for me because I just looked forward to uh, Jason and the Argonauts and, um, you know, the, the other films that he did, the Sinbads that he did. Uh, so those were all pre-any uh, of the, what we consider modern special effects. I remember um, in, when I was like about 18 going to see 2001 and being blown away by the look, which I think the look of it is very similar to Star Wars. But the story, which was almost, had some religious overtones or whatever, I was completely lost in space on that one. So, I mean, while I admired and appreciated that, and I've often thought that, you know, someone else who was probably sitting in that theater at that time was Steve Jobs, who would have been 12. Because if you look at the HAL, you know, faceplate, it is exactly the first iPad pod. And they're all sitting looking at iPads while they're eating dinner on a spaceship there. And they had to project from behind. So those things are hanging out over the edge, you know, to make just so the audience on looking at the movie can see that, oh, those are loose. They're not attached to anything. But I can just imagine under that pad, a projection cone coming from a 16 millimeter projector to make that work. But anyway. It was very influential looks-wise, but then that takes us up to 77, and the year before that had been Logan's Run, which was probably the last film I remember that was sort of the antiquated kind of, you know, traditional look of sci-fi. And then all of a sudden, Star Wars comes out, and it has the technical brilliance of uh, 2001, but it actually has a story and people that you care about, and I think that was probably... Uh, a life-changing moment for all of us, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so where where did you see the first Star Wars originally, and what were your impressions? Well, I saw the first screening in the only place you could see it, and that's the Chinese theater in Hollywood. And uh, in those days, they didn't have, like, Wednesday night it opens, and so on Tuesday night you can see it in a preview. You had to go on the day that it came out, and they would probably start with an afternoon matinee and then somewhere in between that and the evening, 8 o'clock, here we go, was a 5 o'clock show. And we all had it in our minds that that's the one to go to because people are waiting, camping out in front to go to the 8 o'clock one, and we're not, we are working today. It was like a, a Friday or whatever. And so calling in sick or, or leaving the company at noon was not a thing we could do. So we decided we'd go to the five o'clock and only, you know, cut out a couple hours early. And of course, I remember, I think Alan Coates, Claude Coates, who was my mentor at Imagineering, he was with us and there was probably four or five. And, you know, we, we were kind of like the decompression at that point in time, because the only other reference I had, like I was telling you, was the... Um, the brilliance of 2001, but the lack of caring about it. And then films like Logan's Run that were kind of steeped in old, you know, that you could see the saran wrap paper and stuff on the <laughs> models and everything. And so there, here was this thing where there wasn't a flaw visually in it. 
And, you know, these you identified with Luke and you wanted to be Han. And Leah was like the first kind of uh, rebel female character in a film, you know, that was had her own story to tell and her own goals. So, you know, the whole thing of like taking that all in and like, well, where do we do? We went across the street to a chain that I think has gone now called Hamburger Hamlet. And eventually they had a beautiful mural of Spielberg filming a model shot in uh, Raiders. But at that time, it was kind of just generic. And I remember, I don't remember all the conversation, but, you know, trying to replay every scene. And, and here again, it was a time when you couldn't go back and see it again because the next show, the eight o'clock was sold out. So this was our, you know, the thought of like, well, when will we be able to get in here again? And that probably the word is going to get out on this thing and it'll be sold out forever and ever. And um, so I remember laughing and saying, well, we all better go tomorrow and buy 20th Century Fox stock. Ha ha ha. And then nobody did. You know, of course, nobody did. And yeah, ironically, here we are so many years later, and Disney now owns 20th Century Fox. So I guess my, does it count that my Disney stock is now includes Star Wars? I don't know. Well, let me go back. I have one more thing not to do with that opening day. It actually, actually precedes it because I had a friend, Tom Sherman, and uh, he worked with some names that, of course, will ring everybody's chimes here. Dennis Muren and Phil Tippett and... Uh, you know, that whole gang. And they all worked at a place called Cascade in North Hollywood. And Cascade did the stop motion ads like the Pillsbury Doughboy mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And it was, there was no effects industry. So people that, young people that wanted to be doing this kind of stuff, they all kind of hung out at Cascade and they did everything from a, a, an unknown actor, Harrison Ford, uh, flying through the air and landing in a Hertz car, you know, for let Hertz put you in the driver's seat, you know, and I'm looking at the stills from that on the wall. And I go, oh my God, that's Han Solo. <laughs> and so, but that, that's what was going on. So one night, Tom said to me, you know, well, Phil Tippett's going to have, we're going to go out to dinner and we're going to meet at his house. And he's going to show him some stuff that he's working on for this new film. So we go down there. I believe Rick Baker had worked on the cantina too. So we get over to Phil's apartment down in like Silver Lake or Las Feliz, somewhere in there. Very modest, because again, they were older than me, but they were still kids, kind of, you know. And, and so we walk in there and there's two things. There's a giant box that was like a shipping container that's like five and a half feet tall and, you know, four feet square, filled with a cantina heads. Okay, and like, I'm looking at it and we're pulling them out and they're awful. I mean, every one of them, you went, this has got to be the stupidest science fiction thing ever. And I remember trying that. There was a one that was sort of like a giant mouse head. And it bothered me that the glass eyes were, you could see through this eye and out the other eye, which is in the movie, by the way. They may have corrected it in the special editions. But uh, yeah, as the guy turned, you could look right through his head and out the other side. And so I was going, the only thing I could think of is this got to be a B minus kind of, you know, almost a drive-in movie kind of thing. And, and you know, I guess it was called Star Wars or something like that. And that didn't sound, that doesn't, didn't sound like a really appetizing film to me. And then on the table, Phil was working on, he had the chess set, and then laying in boxes were all of the little animated creatures. And I, he said, well, you know, the director really liked this sequence, but in the movie, the chess pieces were never on set with the chess board because they were added in later. And so what I thought would be really fun, I'm drilling holes in the chess set and I'm going to put the figures, mount them on it and give it to the director for, um, you know, kind of a remembrance of the film. 
And again, I looked at those and I went, well, they're kind of like bad Harryhausen figures. You know, they, they, you know I, I'm thinking of my Sinbad skeletons and the dragon and all that stuff, which I grew up with. And eh, they're okay, but, you know. And again, it did, they didn't, you know, I had no context of how they'd be seen in this movie. So I'm thinking a movie using those as stars or something like that. They were kind of second tier things and they were never intended to be close up. They were, you know, just... Ooh, look at all those amazing holographic things. But we didn't know that. I didn't know that. So, you know, that whole night, I just went, I was totally nonplussed. You know, I just thought, oh, those are the goofiest heads and those chess pieces and whatnot. I have no idea what that's going to be. So, you know, when this Star Wars thing came to, you know, opening, it was, again, it was something that I went, well, how bad is it going to be? You know, because my only references were those things. And then the fact that I, you know, all of those guys would get together and there's another guy, Mike Miner, and they would go to a guy's house named Bob Burns, who's still around in, in North Hollywood. And they put on these Halloween shows, you know, and I remember going over there, they did the time machine and they did a lot. So they were like kids. It wasn't like, oh my God, this is going to be these geniuses. I mean, Dennis is now, a ver you know, literally a, by renowned by the entire world as a genius, you know, and, but that time, you know, they were painting stuff in Bob's backyard and this, this box of all these silly heads and stuff that Rick Baker had worked on. And, you know, it was, it was just kids having fun. So there was no sense until coming out of that movie theater that the world had changed, that it was never going to go back to being as it was before. Wow. Yeah. It must have been quite a change in perspective going from those boxes of goofy alien heads at Phil Tippett's to coming out of that theater. Yeah, I need to say I needed to say that because going into Empire, you'd seen the movie, and I now knew that if there was anything weird, which there wasn't about Empire, I guess Yoda might have been weird if you saw him out of context. But <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have that privilege. By now, everyone is, I think, starting to move up north, and uh, and so the whole thing there happening in the Hollywood scene was sort of not the mm -hmm. same, and um, so. You know, now we knew that this, and we had to see the next one because the first one, you know, it was sort of a complete film. It was never, I mean, George wanted to do a trilogy and it talked a little bit about doing nine films, but there was no guarantee one was going to work. So it ended with an ending. And so Empire really was an extension that got us to a cliffhanger, but, you know, there was no real cliffhanger at the end of the first one. So, um, you know, going to see Empire, I remember... We knew it was a guaranteed thing, but again, we were working. And so we all decided at this point now is a gold mine, you know, in the, in the, in the uh, parlance of the movie theater. So they were running 24 hour showing. So mm -hmm. we literally decided that on our work day, I think it was Friday, we would go to the 5 a.m. screen, <laughs> that nobody would go to that. And someone was going to bring the donuts and someone brought the, uh, you know, the, the orange juice and coffee and all that. And I remember sitting, it was at the, the, the uh, Egyptian in Hollywood. And they, have, they had, used to have a long covered archway thing that went up to the front before they ruined the theater and made it modern inside. It still looked like an Egyptian palace. It was done for this silent version of the Ten Commandments. Anyway, um, so we're all sitting there out under that thing, eating our donuts and stuff. And I remember when the 2.30 a.m. group came out, there were all these families with little kids and stuff. And they're going, Mommy, that was so good. And all that. And going, my parents would have never, ever taken me to a 2.30 weeknight. 
And I remember being brought home from Mary Poppins because the line was too long. And my mother said, we're not going to stand in that line. So, you know, to watch these normal families just come out of this show at 2.30 in the morning, and they're all thrilled and they're wide awake. We went in at 5.30 and I said, I sure hope we are wide awake during this movie. And that was not a problem. We did not fall asleep even though we'd been up all night. It was like a grad night because we were sitting there from like 2 o'clock on, you know, to... uh, to see this thing. And uh, I think in the end, I I love Star Wars just because how it affected you and it changed your perspective. But I think I kind of agree with everyone that the second one is probably the, the, the best done of the three because the environments were so richly different, the Vespian Cloud City and the Dagobah and all of that stuff and Yoda. Um, it just became like a Wizard of Oz, you know, on top of three characters that we already loved and villains that were so strong. And everyone kept their mouths shut about Darth Vader as they were coming out at 2.30 in the morning? Yeah. Yeah. Again, we had to go to work immediately. We'd had our, our, our donuts and, and coffee. So now it was like, go to work for a whole day, you know, before you can, anybody can get together to mull this thing over, you know. So getting to Return of the Jedi, what were your expectations going into that? And how did you receive it? Jedi, you know, it, it had that controversy of revenge of the Jedi and all of that. And uh, I don't know, I didn't feel as, you know, uh, even though we had the cliffhanger and we wanted to find out what all happens and everything, um, it was sort of a little bit more routine, routine, I guess, at that point in time. Um, And frankly, uh, George, I think, had uh, his daughter and she was really into teddy bears and everything, as you know, and that affected it in a way that it sort of brought it out of being pure and everything I loved and wanted, and then blinding Harrison Ford's character Han for like a third of the movie uh, and taking him out, you know, when he's kind of... The three of them are glue. And any time one of them is missing, you know, I I always find that it's less... I, I think, you know, directors really need to not just study the technology they put into it and the amazing places they go to, but the interplay, you know, which I think... I would go back to The Wizard of Oz as far as a film that has four characters that are loved the world over and by all rights should be a children's movie, but everybody loves them and loves the way they play off of each other. And if you think about taking out the Tin Man or the, scare, the Scarecrow uh, or even the Lion, it, it, be, it would become less, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that film, you know, it suffered from that, eliminating certain characters kind of giving you some shocking views of Carrie Fisher that, uh, you know, while guys, it was impressive, uh, it was sort of like she wasn't the the gutsy, determined woman. She was using her wiles, you know. So, I, 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 I can't, you know, it's hard to remember going in, but I definitely remember coming out and going, hmm, you know, and not not having the satisfaction that we really wanted from the first, that where they, we'd been led to with the first two. Not that it's a bad movie. It's only lesser good in comparison to the first two, you know. Switching gears here, it'd be great to hear about your early career at Disney and Imagineering and how that brought Star Tours about. Well, you know, uh, going back to the 50s and the films I talked about that I grew up with, probably the, the major influence on me was Disneyland. And I lived in Orange County, so I could ride my bike there. 
uh, I could weasel five bucks out of my mom and believe me for five bucks you could get in and go on 10 rides and get a hot dog or a hamburger and a souvenir you know it was a doable thing because it's not just inflation it just was pretty reasonable to do that so I did it a lot you know and we didn't have yearly passes they didn't have those then so you might be lucky enough to get four or five visits if you were cagey enough so I was there as much as I could be and leading up to why don't I just get a job here when I'm old enough so that I don't have to pay to get in and so the main thing about you know when I was 17 and a half starting there scooping ice cream was not that I wanted to scoop ice cream or I really didn't I was going to college starting in college and I didn't uh need the money my parents were you know taking care of me um you know I I kind of sponged off of them until I was in my later 20s actually and um but so i had the room and board i paid for my car with that disneyland money and what little it cost to go to long beach state but i think working there at disneyland and quickly getting out of foods into attractions um was what i wanted to do because i just love the rides and uh you know and everybody does so it's kind of a cliche to say oh i love disneyland and i love going on all the rides we all do but um, I think there's levels of nerdness, you know, that you get into. And mine was over the top. I mean, I can draw you a ride track of just about every ride in the world um, just because I don't know where it comes from. You just do it. I can do it. And um, so getting on, working on like Adventure Through Inner Space, which was like being a Star Trek movie, we shrunk people down to the size of atoms. And you were wearing this really cool Star Trek like outfit, you know, and. <laughs> Uh, Paul Fries was the narrator on mm -hmm. this thing, this great voice. It was in all the 50 science fiction movies doing the narration. And uh, I would later learn that Clyde Coates, who became my mentor, had designed it. Uh, and I love the fact that it was, it was in the term of the 60s, psychedelic. But if you would go to San Francisco to see um, a rock band perform with lasers and all that, it would be uncontexted. Whereas what was unique about Disneyland and the things they would do Every stunning effect that you could do with lasers and light and everything was in this ride, but it was contexted into the idea of you being shrunk down and entering the world of an atom, you know. And so I love that, that it was at the, um, all of these things were at the, uh, the point of trying to make something make sense. So it's sort of in a way like going to an art gallery where you see objects and art out of context in a blank space with a picture frame around it that has nothing to do with the world that you're in. Whereas Disneyland has the same quality of art, but you, you see it in contexted environments where you enter in and immerse yourself in these environments rather than standing or sitting on a chair and saying, oh, wasn't, you know, Cezanne incredible in that painting. At Disneyland, you're incredible because you're in the painting, you're in it. And so uh, that whole immersive thing, which we didn't have that word then, but um it just i think really intrigued me because there wasn't anything other than knott's berry farm that was really like that so i got the job there and then that led to bringing in my artwork from school to show it off to friends that i worked with and one supervisor came back by and said you know you really ought to show that to dick nunes who was the president of disneyland and i did and he said well if you don't we didn't we didn't have copy machines or computers that store it digitally so my one and only hand-painted copy of my artwork, he said, if you don't mind me taking that for a while, 
next time I go up to WDI, which was called WED at the time, uh, I'll show it off and see what they think. So very quickly, I was called up there for an interview. And I thought, this is it. I'm going from being, you know, just a ride operator at Disneyland to working there. And it wasn't that at all. They were very nice, but they wanted to, like, encourage me to keep going with art and get better. And they kind of, they didn't shame me, but they put me in my place by showing me other great artists while I was there. And, and they'd casually say, oh, how long does it take you to do this, uh, uh, Sam? Like, how long would you, oh, four or five days, you know, and I'm thinking a month for me or two months. And so I, went, I was kind of crushed. And then, you know, I went back, you know, and everyone says, well, did you get a job? Did you get a job? And no, they've just kind of encouraged me to keep going in school and stuff. So um, two more years kind of went by. And then I went back through the whole process again. And uh, this time I brought a machine that used steel ball bearings to perform tricks. And you can buy toys like this now, but at the time you couldn't. And uh, it was kind of artistic because that was my major, but it was showing a lot of engineering skills that was more intuitive. And so I showed all my art and I kind of got that ho-hum look again. And the, the final line, the killer line is, do you have anything else? You know, and I go, oh, I said, yeah, out in the car, I rented a van. I said, I do have something else. So we went down to the parking lot, opened the back of the van and he goes, wow, is there any way we could have you bring this around to the back and bring it in? So they did. And uh, we put it on display in the model shop. And I must spent the rest of the afternoon running it over and over and over again as people would come out of the woodwork. And they say, are you the kid that brought in this new thing? And, and so didn't hear anything for a couple of weeks. And then I actually heard that I'd been hired by the wardrobe issuer at Disneyland who said, oh, there's a card in your file that says, pull all your uniform, your costuming, um, because you're going up to WDI. And I go, I am, you know. And so I appeared there on the following Monday, and uh, they said, oh, what are you doing here? We weren't expecting you for a few more weeks. And I kind of got, I was so nervous. I said, oh, good, I'll go home. You know, that'll be fine. And they said, no, no, you're here. So why don't you just go put on a smock and start? And so that was how it all started. And I started in a model shop, building models. And first, the first job I had was pretty non-glamorous. It was, they had built a model of the Hall of Presidents for Walt Disney World. And they said, um, you know, all the plywood that's around the stage set, why don't you paint that all black with a roller, you know? So I'd come up with my suit and tie on. I didn't know how to dress or anything for it. And I put the smock on and I'm out there with a roller putting black paint all around the model. <laughs> so that was how it started. <laughs> I am curious. So what was the model in the back of the van? What, what was the idea? If you can imagine a wooden kind of something that looks sort of like the facade of Small World at Dis Disneyland with uh -huh. all these wooden and steel tracks. And there were 10 marbles sitting at the top of all these towers and minarets and things on it. And there were 10 marbles. And you'd flip the first one in and it would go through a trick like a car going down mm -hmm. or a music box you know that had ferris wheel spikes on it uh and the spike would turn the music box you know um and one by one they'd expire triggering the next one until the 10th one which would open a curtain and then it would roll through this little stage set with a curtain and the curtain came down and said the end and it took about five minutes for it to go through all that and it was it was very elaborate. I'd started it when I was a kid in high school, and I'd kept refining it. And 
when I was working at Disneyland, I could afford to get some uh, walnut uh, wood milled into little quarter inch by quarter inch uh, wooden, you know, beams. And so I made all the track out of that with a hot glue gun. And anyway, uh, it was, I think it was the, the make or break. And I often tell people when you apply for a job, you know, you know, everyone's going to be competing with you, whether you're a writer or you're an artist or, a, you know, an engineer. And to be able to pull something out of the hat and say, oh, in addition to being an artist, here's some things I do with engineering. And you know they go back to the office and say, well, we have four candidates for this job that are artists, but Tony has this ability with engineering. And I, you know, maybe we should go in that direction because we get something extra. So I think that's something to bear when I talk to younger people. You know, I, I kid them about when we were doing China, the project in Shanghai. I said, if you'd walked in and said, I'm an artist, engineer, writer. Oh, and by the way, I speak fluent Mandarin Chinese. You've got the job, you know. So what were some of your first big projects once you got into Imagineering? Well, everyone kind of thinks that you hire in to be a designer or a film director if you're, you know, on the film side of things. And that isn't the case unless maybe your last name is Spielberg or something like that. And, or Lucas. And no, so I went to work in the model shop and... I found over time that there's different ways of working. Some people uh, gyrate to you know, designers and, and, and creative people that um, have it all in their mind what they want, and they tell you what to do. And there's a security in that and a comfort that a lot of um, young people like because they don't have to worry about what am I going to do or whatever. Well, you know, Mark Davis wants this and he wants it blue and he wants it six inches tall and um, you better do it that way or you're going to be in trouble. And I'm not putting that down, but that, that felt stifling to me. I remember getting actually, you know, kind of angry. Mark got angry at me because I changed something for the Bear Band Theater, you know, and I put an added thing onto it. And he said, did I tell you to do that? And I said, no, but th when you put it in the model, that side faces the audience and there was nothing on it. So I put some details. I'll, uh, Mr. Davis, I'll go back and take it off. And he goes, no, leave it on there. And then as I walked out, he said, uh, but don't you ever do anything again unless I've approved it. So, you know, I walked out and I, my heart was racing and all that. But Claude Coates, who I ended up just marrying in with perfectly, and I think he taught me that when you're mentoring and you're menteeing, that there's a learning and a teaching on both sides. Because if you have an older mentor, they're really, if they're a good mentor, they're looking for what are the new things? What are young people into? And what would appeal to your generation that I'm not doing and all that? And I'm looking at, my God, you painted on the movie, you painted all the beautiful backgrounds from Pinocchio back in the 40s. Like, you're a genius, you know, and... I want to learn all that. And uh, we hit it off. And instead of telling you what to do, he would say, well, why don't you take that to your desk and work up some ideas? When you've got a couple, why don't you bring it back and then we'll talk about it. And so, you know, it's scary because, you know, you're not being told what to do and what color to paint it. But the great thing about it was um, when I'd bring it in there, he goes, I kind of like that. You know, that really looks good. And then you have the next step where, you know, you're always wondering, is someone going to take advantage of me, you know? And you don't, you're not there. You're the little kid on the block, new kid on the block. And is he taking it into management saying, I came up with this beautiful idea and whatnot. But what I found with Claude 
he said, are you going to be here on Friday? And I said, yes. He said, well, Card Walker's coming over. And Card was head of the studio at that time, the, the Walt Disney studio. And he said, I want to show him the, the work we're doing on Snow White. And I want you here to meet him. And so that happened. And he said, oh, Card, he said, this is Tony Baxter. He's new here. And he came up with some great ideas for the Snow White thing. And Tony, why don't you show Card what you did? And right away, you know, this guy is this guy has my back, you know, and he didn't need to make more points with Card. He realized if this company is going to go on, Card needs to know some of the young talent that are going to make it go on. So um, I recognized that right away and we stayed friends until I actually I actually spoke at his, uh, you know, at his services when he passed away. So we became more than just mentee and mentor, but very close friends. And um, so, like I said, I learned a lot in that, you know, apprentice era of my time there. And it, I think it prepared me for, first of all, how I wanted to work in the system. I kind of looked at the extremes of this and where I felt I would be better, you know, encouraging other people to work and do excel, excel in their talents. And um, it also prepared me to come up with ideas i think you know that being forced to go back to your desk and come up with something you know that's a different thing than being given it's blue it's six inches tall and whatever which you know then you didn't have to think and i think you could get comfortable not having to think when i got there i worked in the model shop and you kind of do all the basic things like cutting out facades for main street and you know it wasn't too long i started to see how the different people worked and Claude liked the way I worked and the fact that I would extend his vision. He would give me an idea and then I would develop it and, and it would grow. And I, that was what another thing that I think he responded to is that it gets more than he could see or I could see by beating it around and, and coming up with something better. And so within a year and a half, I went to Walt Disney World for Claude and installed the Snow White ride and worked with Dave Burkhart on the... Uh, 20,000 Leagues, which is another uh, wonderful, you know, film that I grew up with. It was a little before my childhood, but as I, like you did with Star Wars, I came into it on the first re, uh, re-showing of it and uh, fell in love with the Nautilus. And so those two rides, I went down there to support Claude. But when I came back, there was kind of a aura around people that had been in the field and installed things and done field art direction ooh, somebody who's advanced to a new level. So I had the opportunity then and I took it because another thing I learned that if you're not somewhat aggressive, you know, it's going to go to someone else who is. So I said, well, it turned out we weren't going to do Mark Davis's um, beautiful, he had a giant pirate-sized ride called the Western River Ride. And because they didn't open Walt Disney World with, with pirates, they got slammed by the guests saying, well, don't go to Walt Disney World, go to Disneyland because they have this incredible ride called Pirates of the Caribbean. So the park panicked and they said, we got to build a pirate ride. So Mark's Western show was put on hold. And I took advantage of that saying, well, I'll develop a thing where we can build a, a train ride and I'll create it so it works with Mark's ride so that when you're ready to go back into that, um, the space will be very compatible with the train ride. So that train ride became Big Thunder Mountain. And it pushed me out of being a model builder to being a designer. And that was a major transformation for me in what I did there. And I, the other thing that I started to realize, this would have been around in the mid to late 70s. 
um, the guys that work with Walt were all maybe five or 10 years younger than Walt. And Walt died in the 60s at 65. And so here we are 10 or 15 years later, and these people are all 65, 70 in that range. And so they're leaving. They're quitting. They're leaving. And um, they're all looking for someone to tell them what to do. Because what Walt did, and you can see it in all the films that Walt recorded, he says, well, I'm like a little bee. And I go around, you know, pollinating and telling people what to do and giving them ideas and whatnot. And I all of a sudden, with Big Thunder, I realized everyone was kind of waiting for someone to have something that we could do. And they, they had such incredible talents in architecture and engineering. And as soon as it was stated that we're going to do Big Thunder, there was so many people that wanted to jump on the bandwagon and help get it done. And so what I found out right in that time was maybe one of the things I can do is come up with ideas and, um, you know, and push them along and get people excited and encouraged to follow them and make them happen. So that was sort of the start of that. 28 years ago, Walt Disney staked his reputation and his pocketbook on what he called an amusement park for the young and young at heart. Today, a $42 million renovation of one of the park's favorite attractions, Fantasyland, was unveiled. Our Orange County correspondent, Dave Lopez, has a live report from the Magic Kingdom. David? Carney, no matter how many times you've been to Disneyland in the past, when you come into the new Fantasyland, you get the feeling that you have never been in this park before. What they wanted to create, they have done it in a very spectacular fashion. So another wonderful thing about working with Claude Coates is, you know, I admired all the film work he had done. And one day I came in and I said, you know, Pinocchio is probably the most stunning uh, environmental movie ever done in animation. And I've always loved that architecture. And I wonder, would you guide me if I wanted to paint like a background painting style piece? And he said, well, you know, it's going to be a lot of work. And um, I said, yeah, but I, I just kind of got to get that, that out of my system. So we, he did help and, uh, me work on a piece that I've got hanging here in the, in the room uh, that looks a lot like a, I called it a fantasy on fantasy land. It's like the ultimate fantasy land. And I hung it over my desk and uh, lo and behold, they came to a point where they wanted to redo fantasy land at Disneyland. And they said, well, what about that guy out in the model shop that did that really great piece? So it became, I realized it was like a big billboard behind my desk, you know. And so if there were all these executives and leaders and stuff walking by, they may have just kept that in their mind, like, you know, a big neon sign. So pick Tony, pick Tony. So I was put on that job and it, it followed Epcot. And we had done a really neat pavilion down there with a little character called Figment. And uh, so I've been heavily involved in getting that open in early 83. And then we moved right away on to doing this fantasy land coming off of that. And it was a really high time for me because Figment had scored really high with the public down there. It was almost the favorite pavilion in Epcot when it opened. And, and now we were going right into, you know, taking on Walt's Fantasyland at Disneyland, the heart of Disneyland. And it was scary. I remember when we tore it down and we all went down there that night and we went, we just bombed the most precious thing on the planet here. And like, what if this doesn't work? And fortunately it did. Um, but so I was coming along. But at the same time, Disney was really beginning to cascade down into a dump. And between the finishing of Epcot and the transformation of the company, which was when Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came in in 85, we weren't doing anything. We had no mythology that had grabbed the public in film. Uh, the parks, Epcot was well-received, 
and Fantasyland did well. And so if you're going to say there was an epicenter of Disney at the time, it was the WDI and the parks. But the films were being carried by both the theme parks and probably some merchandise. But even the if you have a film like, you know, The Fox and the Hounds, it's not selling volumes of merchandise. What was selling volumes of merchandise was Star Wars and E.T. And uh, films, you know, the Spielberg films and Indiana Jones. And all of us who had gone to the theater on opening day down to the Chinese and lived through all these films that were beginning to become the Disney films of the 70s and 80s, we're looking at it that Disney's becoming the Lawrence Welk, you know, which was a, a guy that played my parents' level of music, you know. And Saturday nights, you know, you'd have to get out of the house because nobody came in and changed the channel. From, and I, a very nice guy, but very, you know, 50s, 40s, you know, you know, band music. And so we're all sitting there going, you know, you had this thing of like, we work at Disney, but wouldn't it be cool to be, you know, involved in what everyone cares about? So I went into Marty Scalar and I said, what do you think if we approached um, George Lucas about, you know, working with him on bringing Star Wars to Disneyland? And Marty's jaw dropped and he said, you would have to go over and talk to Ron Miller. And Ron was married to Diane Disney, Walt's daughter, and running the company creatively and had just done The Black Hole, you know, which was a follow-up wannabe uh, film to Star Wars and not in the same league at all, but um, noble, I guess you could say. And, uh, you know, Mar Marty said, there's no way I would walk into that. But if you want me to set up a session for you to go over and talk to Ron, I will do it. So he did it. And I didn't realize in a way I was kind of offending him because you're going in and saying, because we aren't doing anything that's captivated the audience, we really need to do this. So I had to like figure a way to do it in which it wouldn't be a direct, you know, aiming at, at Ron. And so, uh, it, and it was funny, he helped me there because we walked in and he said, you know, if Black Hole had been first, we wouldn't be having this conversation. It would have been the one that everyone was looking at George as having copied Black Hole. And I said, you're absolutely right. I know what you're saying, but we have a problem here. And he said, well, what's that? And I said, Disneyland survives on adults or children that grew up with it. My age grew up with Disneyland, and we're now at an age where we're starting to have kids. And you want to bring them to see what you were thrilled with. Yes, he said. And I said, so anyone who grew up in the era of Star Wars, E.T., Indiana Jones, all of that, is not going to identify with Disneyland as being this, the, you know, what would you say, the epicenter of pop culture for their generation. And I said, so you could literally have, you know, people that are between this age and this age not identify with our product if we don't have something there that they can go back into when they're bringing their children and, and, and going, I remember, there's the music, there's R2-D2, there's Indiana Jones, there's all these characters that were so important to me as a child. And I said, I look at Peter Pan and uh, Snow White and all of those characters, Mr. Toad, with the same affinity, uh, because those were things I saw on TV and whatnot when I was a child. And now here we are, and we just haven't connected. And he said, okay, so what do you want me to do? He said, I could get George to come over to the Silverado Vineyards, which were the family wine vineyard up in the Napa Valley, 
not too far from San Rafael and where George was camped out. He said, why don't we set up a thing where we'll talk with George over there and we'll, uh, we'll see what, what happens from it. So I went back to Marty and I said, it went really well and Ron wants to have this thing over there. And so you and I are going to go up there. And we took Gary Kreisel, who was head of Disney Music at the time, and Gary had signed a deal with Lucasfilm to distribute all the children's records. So if you go back to 77, Lucas didn't have any of those uh, divisions and everything. So all of that was handled by Disney. And that's really ironic because Gary was way ahead of the curve. All the Storyteller albums, all the you know things with R2-D2 and all that, those were on Disneyland Records. So uh, Gary went with us because he'd already established the connection. So I remember being in the backyard up there at uh, Silverado and Diana's fixing the lunch. There were no servants or anything like that. Diane was fixing the lunch. Ron is out there with his Jeep taking us on tours through the vineyards and all that stuff. And we're waiting for George. And then George drove up in a BMW himself, no driver or anything. Hi guys. You know, we are out in the backyard and Diane says, okay, we got plenty of food in here. There's a lot more in the refrigerator. So don't be bashful and all that. And so I'm standing in line with the president of the Disney company, Walt Disney's daughter, and George Lucas, who has revolutionized the entire cinematic universe. And I remember just saying, you know, in your head, you're playing all these things back and going, you know, if this plane goes down on the way home, it doesn't matter because this is as good as it gets. And so the day went really well. And George kind of said, told all his stories about going to Disneyland and how much it meant to him. And he said, you know, he had enough of an ego and rightly so. He said, you know, I'm a number one business and my company and my products are A1 perfect. And he said, I think of Disneyland the same way. And so uh, it's a perfect marriage because I don't have the money to do this kind of stuff. I've wanted to and I've looked into it, but to get to the place where Disneyland already is, there's no way to do it. So um, let's see where it goes. Let's go. So we came home and then came the scary point. Like, what are we going to do? You know, like, because we already have Space Mountain. It takes you on a roller coaster into the galaxies. So what is going to be there for this, this attraction, you know, to do? That's, uh, that's a crazy lunch. It was. <laughs> no, I mean, I, but it was so regular. I mean, if there had been, all, you know, I don't know. I just thought the pretense I went, madam. Would you like dinner to be served now? You know, yes, Jeeves will be in the dining room at all. You know, that's sort of what I thought. You know, Walt's daughter, Walt Disney's daughter, you know, the empire. And no, it's like just jeans and everybody in the backyard, you know, talking like we were this right now. Not like we were, you know, among the gods of the heavens or something. I don't know. I just, I'm in awe because I was in awe of them, you know. And all of a sudden I realized there aren't that many people that don't, that have ideas. So they're letting me have ideas because they want some ideas. And once I grabbed on that and I realized that's kind of my role here, uh, it became a lot easier because I immediately knew all the people that worked in Imagineering that loved all the stuff. It was like we would sit at night talking about movies and going to these films and what if, what if, what if. And so... It wasn't like I had to go, well, now who will work on this? It was like, we know all the people and we're going to put together a team of, oh my gosh, I get to work on this. I get to be involved in this Star Wars or something. This is, this is off the charts. Great. You know, so. 
So in terms of the concept for Star Tours and the technology involved, where did things start and how did the project evolve? So when I came back uh, from this and the euphoria of this afternoon began to drain, you started thinking, well, what are we going to do? And the logic, I mean, back then, first of all, there was no such thing as a simulator ride in a theme park environment. Um, so our logic was, well, we have to do a roller coaster because it's got to be fast and thrilling. And because it's Lucas, maybe we've got to get some interactivity into it. So the guest makes choices and things. So it's not a just go up the chain and go through a single option story. So we worked very hard on a roller coaster that had three choice points where the guests would be asked whether they go in and fight or they go and try to escape, you know, and things like that. And it had a great beginning with Yoda and uh, apparition of uh, Obi-Wan in a Dagobah forest. Yoda was um, going to try to see how strong a force was with our group. What we were really doing was weighing the roller coaster vehicle. Uh, and so you have about 30 seconds for the computers to deal with that and decide how fast they're going to accelerate the vehicle through the ride. We do this on Space Mountain where you pull out of the station and it's literally weighed and that either delays or accelerates the time that you get up to the top so that you don't catch up to the vehicle in front of you. Anyway, so we're taking that time and I said it was where I think I first got the idea of what we ended up doing in the rolling ball scene in Indiana Jones, but it was a variant on it in that Yoda and the whole Dagobah forest around you is an elevator and the track was not part of the elevator. So Yoda and all the things around him, the trees and whatnot, lowered down as uh, he says, is the force strong with this group? I, I feel, I sense that it is. Uh, all of this was going down. So the effect was your vehicle and everything was rising up in the forest, you know, and then when it goes, you know, when you reach the supreme strength thing of like, you know, that he was so impressed that there's, he's never seen anything like this. And wow, it took off and went out of there. Well, once we started playing with, you know, switch points, each one of those doubled the length of the track and the size of the building. And so if you ended up with three switch points, that's six sections of track um, and probably four times the size of a building of Space Mountain to do it in. And so you started to realize that sooner or later management's going to catch on to what we were doing here, and this is not doable. And uh, I was really getting scared because we were trying to think, well, is there some other thing we could do? And I don't know, a dark ride and all that doesn't seem right for the energy level of Lucas Films. That I think part of the thing is you come out and you're just exhilarated, and you've been thrust through a story where you care about the people, but. Their adventures are always action-packed and, uh, you know, there's never a letdown. It's just constantly moving. And so, like, when you think of a ride, it's got to have that same delivery or it, it fails to make the people feel it's an authentic version of a Lucas product. So we were starting to get scared. And a good friend of mine, Randy Bright, who had been doing all the Epcot films and was going back and forth to... London to record the London Philharmonic for all the Epcot films, which was the first use of digital sound, actually. And the first movie to come out, this is a sidebar, first movie was The Black Hole. And the digital soundtracks were actually carried on VHS tapes that were in the theater and synchronized to the physical film running through over in the Century City. Um, that was the debut of digital sound, The Black Hole. So once again, Disney did have the first 
of a new technology. But anyway, so Randy had been recording Epcot music and sound effects and everything in England digitally. And someone told him, hey, you ought to go out to this uh, corporation called Red Effusion. It was near Heathrow Airport. And he said, they're trying to get someone to look at their uh, military simulators for a theme park attraction. So Randy went out and they had a very hokey film shot on a roller coaster that you watched where you sat in a pilot seat in where they would train military and uh, people for commercial pilots. And Randy came back and he said, you know, he did this twice for me. He did it this time. And on the voice of Figment, which we struggled and struggled, we'd had hundreds of actors in. And I said, nothing fits that little dragon. And I know I'm sidebarring here, but, and he said, why don't you try a little person, you know? And I said, really? And he goes, yeah, it's a little tiny figure with a little tiny head. Maybe it should be a little voice. And so we got in Billy Barty and everything was solved and Billy became the voice of Figment. So I was really inclined to listen to Randy. And he said, you know, I just have a, a sense about this thing. You should maybe take a group from Disneyland. So we took maintenance workers and, you know, the head of maintenance and the head of operations. We went over to Red Effusion and it took us 20 or 30 minutes to get into the thing. And at Disneyland, we knew if it, would work, if it was going to work, you'd have to get everybody in and buckled in about one minute. So we were 20 times out of reality here, you know, in getting in this thing. And our patents, by the way, are in the doors and the elevator ramps that uh, come down to get you on and off the simulator. But we definitely got enough out of that to realize, here's the way to take people into a galaxy far, far away that looks limitless and gives you all the feelings that you don't get in the movie theater uh, where you're with Luke in the trench and you're exploding through, you know, uh, in our case, it wasn't asteroids, but it was ice droids, uh, you know, breaking through a cavern in, in space and whatnot. Uh, and we knew we could probably do it. So I came back and the ops people were impressed and the maintenance guy said, we're going to have to figure out a way to uh, literally refrigerate the hydro hydraulic fluid. Because when you're training fighter pilots, they're working very hard to not have the thing move at all. You know, and so when they throw a storm or whatever at them, they're working overboard to compensate and keep the thing. Whereas we said, we want to try and make it do every awful thing that you could possibly do. And not just for five minutes and then the pilots leave. It's five minutes later, there'll be another group and another group all day until midnight. So the big challenge was how do we refrigerate the hydraulic fluid? Uh, but that was a task that our engineering ate up and solved it, you know, fairly quickly. And so we were off and running and um, that got us to the point with getting now a, another dream thing, which was to go up and meet with ILM and figure out how are we going to divide the task? So we had decided... Uh, on the ride side of it, we have to have throughput and time running and all that stuff that meets capacity goals. So we did, with a little 8mm camera, we shot an animatic uh, that ended up getting us to about 4 minutes and 35 seconds. And that time was delivered because at 4 minutes and 40 seconds, your curve of people getting upset stomachs starts rising. And so we wanted to stay in the 99 percentile thing of nobody up-checking in the ride. And that was at 4.35. And it's funny, all the stuff that drives this has nothing to do with script or story. But people would come in and say, 
Well, if you get it down to four minutes, if you plot that out over a day, it's like five more rides and this much higher capacity. And I said, it's not a movie, it's a window. And they go, well, what are you talking about, a window? I said, well, in, when you're driving from here to there in your car, we'd all love to suddenly, you know, leave from where we are and be where we want to be. But, you know, we've got the trick of the hyperwarp, but you, can't, you cannot just suddenly cut away from the window in the movie you'd cut to Luke Skywalker in, in a, a face shot in the, in the X-Wing and then back. And you might have left a model and gone on to a, a scenic painting or something, but we don't have that. ILM is going to have to film a five-minute, one-shot view. Ironically, there's a film this year, 1917, that's a one-shot motion picture. Um, but this was really new, and they were all excited about it because they had never done anything like that before. But we had all these pressures, you know, the operator saying, well, can't you edit it? No, you can't edit it. It's a window. And, you know, the sickness thing of like, we can't go beyond that number or we start getting into a ramp that we don't want to deal with. And so we ended up at that time and we had this little poorly made film that we did that we gave to ILM and we went back and forth several times on certain scenes and so forth with it. Um, and the other thing that was really important in this was coming up with a Bible that we wrote for it that not only it did one thing that nobody else has ever done on simulators, I don't think, because, you know, you go on other rides that are shorter and you get sicker. And they never really plotted out the importance of following certain actions with other actions that the vehicle is capable of doing. And in a simulator, when you've exhausted all your energy and the, the uh, hydraulics are gone, you have to write in a story element that gets you back to where you've got the capabilities to do something physical again. And a lot of people just go on with a drop or whatever that's finished uh, from a, a gravitational standpoint. You, you've, got, you've lost all your sensation. But if the, if the drop is still continuing and you're already bottomed out, you get the sense that your stomach just left, you know. Uh, and so we wrote this Bible that said this kind of a shot has to have this kind of a shot, this kind of a shot, this position has to have that. And then the second thing is we had eight inputs that, you know, you could end up with a cacophony of too many things and the, and the guests don't know what to focus on, you know. So you think, well, you've got a motion base in a movie, you know. Yeah, that's two of the eight. Then you've got sound effects, you've got music, you've got lighting effects, you've got uh, a screen over here with, a, uh, with other pilots and other drives, and then you've got a droid up in the front. Um, and we ended up with eight things in there. And we did this whole thing that showed from second number one to second, you know, at the end of four and a half minutes. And what is dominating? What thing do we want you focused on? And so all through that thing, you know, obviously you use the simulation and the motion picture at the top of the list, but there were points in there where, like for the recovery of the hydraulics, I said, I know what we can do. We can have a tractor beam and you're pulled into the, into the Star Destroyer and we use that triumphant Darth Vader, you know, march of dun, dun, dun. Thrust. 
and there's absolutely nothing we could be doing in those 10, 15 seconds but refilling the hydraulic cylinders. And so we just tilted it back a little bit and it gave you that sense of being magnetically pulled up and then the, the reinforcing that with a dun, dun, dun. It was one of the strongest parts in that first show and yet we weren't using any of the things that you'd be thinking of. And so where mistakes are made is where you're trying to you know, do whatever you can with the ship and the movie is still going on and you're going, it's sort of like a, a physical and emotional disconnect, you know? And so we didn't have any of those. And the other thing we did is it allowed you to get bearings every about every 45 seconds, you'd complete a mission or, or some catastrophe and you'd get a pause point. Light speed to Endor, you know? Ah, I meant to do that, you know, uh, and, and so forth. So these things were really plotted in there, along with these little things that for, force your attention to something else. There's one second in the middle of that first show where you hear that ubiquitous boom when you're on an airplane and that goes off and all the stewards and stewardesses go to take their seats and you go, oh my God. And you're sitting there going, you know, like, and there could be nothing more frightening than boom, you know. And so we let that punch through you know for one second we said that is the most important thing in the show not the simulator not the the movie or whatever just that horrible bell going off you know ladies and gentlemen there may be some turbulence up ahead make sure your seatbelts are fastened so i think that's why to me there's a lot to be said about that first experience because there were limitations then it was 70 millimeter film that was on board a thing that is literally out of control that never once scratched the film or damaged it. It would fade from being run for nine months or a year, but it would never scratch. And uh, that was the brilliance of our engineering staff there. You know, Don Iwerks and the guys that were beyond him, past him that came up with those loop cabinets and everything. So we couldn't do a multiple scenario thing. And 3D wasn't really practical at that time. It would have been too... 70 millimeter films on board, you know, rocking around and everything. So, you know, within the framework, I thought that was, you know, it was really a brilliantly done thing. And what was interesting is it was the first thing we'd ever done with anyone from the outside. It was the first, first non-Disney mythology in Disneyland. And George, on the other hand, was like, this is my first thing where someone's taking a hand in creating what I, I stand for. So he wasn't about to just sit still and um, accept whatever we were doing. So he was there a lot. And because he also had that Disney fan quality that he grew up with, he would in, in, insert things that we would have never thought of. Like I remember sitting there and he says at the beginning, well, why are we just going down the launch thing and launching this? And we said, well, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, well, at Disneyland, there are all these doors that say cast members only, don't go in here, maintenance. And as a kid, I would always try to look through the crack and peek and all that stuff. Why don't you have it go off the main path and crash through those doors and go the wrong way? And so it, he almost unlocked right there the scenario that every simulator has ever done since then that, you know, we're always doing something wrong and going the wrong way. And, uh, and it was brilliant because it was not what everyone expected. You had that beautiful launch corridor and all the guys with the lights are f 
signaling you to go forward and then crash off it goes this way and down this corridor and almost takes a dump in the uh the the, the uh, backstage area and what was fun about that is ilm and all the guys up there that were really disneyland nuts wanted the mighty microscope from the old adventure through inner space that i worked on as a ride operator they wanted that mighty microscope that shrunk the guests in that storage bay like it had been hauled out of what is now the star tours um you know port at Tomorrowland and thrown into the junk bay back there. So as you fell off the end of the ramp and the thing careened through there, everybody that was a, a Disney, you know, nerd could see the mighty microscope buried in all the rubble down there at the bottom of this thing. And then, of course, our pilot comes on and does the, ha, I meant to do that, you know. I meant to do that. A little shortcut. <laughs> Trying to make an excuse for it. So the rhythm that we developed for that kind of became a template for countless um, simulators that were done all over the planet. But, you know, when when we started it, I remember saying, we can't fall in love with the fact that we're the first simulator and that it's a new technology. It's got to be great because it's Star Wars. And here we are, that was 1987 that we opened. Uh, But it's still running. You know, we've upgraded the shows and everything, but it's still running because... When I was first thinking this, that we're going to lose a generation or two of people that grew up with these movies, and this is their pop culture. And I know I've listened to you talk. You talk about that, that even though you were born after it. It's just kind of become part and ingrained in who you are. And so because of that, going in there isn't looking at a 42-year-old you know, vintage simulator ride. It's the minute you walk in that door and you hear John Williams' music and you hear R2 and 3PO and all that, it's like you're saying to yourself, I'm home. I'm where I belong. And so it's still running and we still have the same kind of lines we have for Peter Pan uh, because we invested in a heartfelt, amazing world and story instead of just being satisfied that this is a simulator that will give you sensations of motion. Okay, so you reach the finish line and the ride opens in early 1987. What was the reception like? Were people going as crazy for the ride as they had for the movies? It was kind of a dark time for Star Wars as a product. As a product, yeah, but there was so much pent-up demand for Star Wars as a product that I remember Michael teased it at a stockholder meeting. Michael Eisner, who you know now come into the company and I should say that, you know, Ron was supportive of this and he was, you know, in complete awareness of it uh, as head of the company. And then uh, there was a big management change up in 1985 uh, and in came Michael Eisner and Frank Wells, who were studio heads from Warner Brothers and Paramount. And Paramount, of course, released the indie film. So, you know, uh, Michael Eisner was from Paramount and worked with George. And so this was... In the other studios, it was not a big thing to work with any directors and have people coming and going. Disney was inbred in that the directors and the writers and the music and all that was all internal. So the culture shift of bringing Michael and Frank in and making it okay to go outside was a big, you know, and the first thing they did was, we've got to make it feel like Disneyland is awake and, and, and starting to react to where pop culture is. So we can't wait all the way till 1987. I mean, this was in 85 when they came in. We can't wait that long. So what can we do right away? Let's get the, the hottest pop star 
the number one director. Um, so we'll get, you know, Michael Jackson, we'll get Coppola, we'll get George to produce it. We'll do it in 3D because everyone, that was just starting to be a thing. And we had Captain EO there in about a year and a half after Michael came in. And there were a lot of Disney people that are going, oh my God, the world has come to an end. Uh, Walt would never do that. I mean, nobody knows what Walt would do because he always did something new. You know, that was what Walt did was something that had never been done before. So I found it ironic to be in this thing where you had all these preservationists that, you know, and I said, you can't jealously guard your time when Snow White and Peter Pan and all that were your childhood. We should definitely make sure that stays, but you've got to welcome in what is the childhood from the next generation. And as a veteran of trying to do a Robin Hood ride, where I remember laying it all out and going, well, you go by sticks and stones out in the forest, and then you go by a castle wall, and there's no wonderland there's no neverland there's no jewel mine from the seven dwarfs there's nothing magical in these movies whereas star wars was filled with magical places and and all the things that walt did i think taught both george lucas and steven spielberg and countless other of their generation they'd all grown up on watching these films in the theater and they'd watch them on it's no it's no uh, lack of coincidence that every single major Disney motion picture has a hero heroine that's missing a parent figure. And then let's go to Star Wars. Luke, Leah, Han, none of, no, but we don't have, all of them are in these, you know, dysfunctional or, or missing families. And then we go over to E.T. with Steven Spielberg. We've got a family of, you know, the, the father is gone. And little E.T. has been left and marooned on his planet. And that's so you're right away sympathetic with these characters immediately. So all the rules that Walt used were clearly things that these new great directors were highly aware of and plugged in to get people to page 20 without spending all the time to win you over. They, they had you immediately. Dumbo, Peter Pan, all of these characters are the same thing. So in my mind, it was, it was labels. And since Walt Disney died in 1966, you know, Walt Disney wasn't making any more movies. So like if Spielberg and Lucas are the new directors that are doing this, of course, they've got to have their name there. And the whole idea, whether it's Paramount or Fox or Disney is irrelevant. It's like, we should have them doing this here. So there was a huge uh excitement about when michael at the end of the stockholders meeting said oh and we do have another uh little thing to tell you we've signed a deal with the lucasfilm and we were going to be adding a ride based on star wars to disneyland and i have to say that moment in the anaheim convention center i just felt like i'm at the center of the absolute universe you know at this moment uh, because as you said, there was pent-up demand for anything Star Wars. And the whole idea of Disneyland was starting to feel stale. And not only was there going to be a new ride, but it was going to be the coolest of all the world rides of, you know, of pop culture. And so, you know, we had the obligation now of following it through. But that day, I think, made it um, legitimate 
that it was going to be great. And yes, we spent the rest of the next two years fighting off um, the negativity. And I think because I feel obligated to both cultures, that it was a strong reason why I was very um, adamant that we do Splash Mountain. Uh, and you got to remember, like people say, well, why did you pick a film that you can't even show? And I said, there was no Little Mermaid or Beauty and the Beast. Those didn't exist. And every other Disney movie had been exploited. And we're going through the box going, what's left? And we go, oh, my gosh, here's an animated film. It's got Academy Award winning music, Zippity Doodah, great characters. And so, and it was the perfect balance. So if you're going to make a radically, you know, culture shift and bring in something like Star Wars to Disneyland, um, to have something soft and palatable that's pure Disney in Song of the South coming into the park as Splash Mountain, it was the perfect thing to say, we're not abandoning either culture. There's going to be things for the you, you that grew up in the 40s and the 50s and 60s, and for the, those of you who grew up in the 70s and 80s, um, everybody is going to find things here. And we're going to keep re rejuvenating those audiences as long as they're uh, in our, our, our you know, guest space. So when we opened, um, I've always, I always like the, the reaction that sort of goes this way, and it's gone this way with everything where we've taken something out and put something in. Your only obligation is in your own mind to know that what you're putting back in is better than what you took out. In this case, we took out Adventure Turner Space to put in Star Tours. And while it was great in 1967 when it opened, we were now at 1985, and the techniques and things in it were yesterday's news, you know. And so I knew Star Tours was going to be better than that. So I wasn't really frightened about that. We've done other things where it's not, and then you pay for it with... Uh, the people that took out the Journey into Imagination ride in Florida and put in a very shallow show with Eric Idle, um, Journey into Your Imagination, uh, were so chastised by the audience and the guests that they had to put our character back into that ride, bring Figment back into the show with Eric Idle, which doesn't make any sense either because you've got two, you know, silly comedians fighting against each other, you know, instead of... In the great combos like Laurel and Hardy and uh, Al, uh, Abbott and Costello and Dean Martin, Jerry Lewis, yeah, you need a straight man. And, but we've got Crazy Figment and Crazy Eric Idle. Anyway, that's not this story. Um, so this story is, uh, you know, bringing in this culture and, and still trying to balance it with something like, uh, like Splash Mountain. So when we get to opening day i always look for these things and i've heard it a lot where on one end with like something like big thunder it was wow it's like it was always here and they just pulled a few of the trees out of the way and we were able to get on it you know for the first time and they said that to me about indy you know it's like you hacked away a little bit of the jungle and there was this temple already there and, and it's sort of like saying you didn't ruin or scar my disneyland and when i came out i didn't find this gross misuse of Walt's dream uh, to put your own stamp on it or something like that. So it was harder with Splash Mountain because it's literally 50 feet from the Haunted Mansion. And how do you make... And when it was in steel and it was taller than uh, the mansion, uh, it looked like we were building an office building, you know, and everyone's going, oh my God, you know, they're ruining Disneyland. And I said, that's all going to be landscape. You know, it's not going to be a building. 
And so then you hear people say, well, I didn't think I was going to like it, but now that I've been on it, it's really good, you know. And, and that's what, was, what happened with um, Star Tours, in fact. Literally, on the old Adventure 300 Speeds, everything happened. I mean, we, it was built during the drug culture era of the hippie 60s and whatnot. And it was the place you went to get high in there. And so we had people monitoring the ride. I remember going in there. We had a position where you could smell the marijuana and you could see anything and you'd get the car number and they'd be <clears throat> taken out of the park at the end of the ride. And literally when we announced that it was being taken out, <laughs> we'd get letters and they made it really hard to do your job because you went, oh my gosh, we're ruining these people whose lives were built on this ride. But this one was uh, particularly funny. And it was a guy that wrote in and goes, how could you do this? My son isn't old enough for me to share the joy of taking him on it to show him where his life began. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not going to be able to do that. <laughs> so, go figure. Anyway, so that runs the gamut. <laughs> so you had that extreme of people that were so excited about the new ride. And at the other end of the spectrum um, was that kind of a response. So, but anyway, when it opened, you know, it was a five-hour line. The park was overwhelmed with what are we going to do to handle it so they just decided we'll stay open through three days and i i've always said that 72 hours but really from the opening of eight in the morning till closing it whatever on the last day it was 60 hours but it was three operating days essentially mirroring those 24-hour screenings of the movies and what was great about it i think was that because of that generosity on the park's part um the people waiting in line for five hours for a five-minute ride and remember, you got to put yourself in the perspective that um, this was a world who hadn't had a new Star Wars movie in about uh, four years. And there's one theater in the entire world showing a new episode. Okay. So that's why we had the five-hour line. And we would allow the press, because we were getting such good reactions off of it, we would allow the press to interview people stepping off. Um. And they would, we never got a negative thing. You know, it was always like, we're going to get in line again. And because it was, you know, open for all these hours, you know, someone would get in the line and other people would go home and shower. And, you know, and it was a big party, a bash thing. And you'd go on other rides and come back and get in, you know, take the place of someone else. And so they were all just really, really enjoying it. And one woman I remember came off and said, she actually this was a written comment she said that must be the largest facility in disneyland i can't even conceive of the scope of what you must have built to get all this to happen you know and ironically it's in a very precise and small facility compared to our major attractions at disneyland so i guess in the end it worked a lot better than maybe a big roller coaster with switch tracks and everything would have because I, as much as I love Space Mountain, I'm always aware pretty much of the dimensions of the, you know, the space. So um, it was a pretty exciting thing. And the only conflict I remember midway through is with Dennis Muren, who, of course, I went way back to where we had that evening in Phil Tippett's place. And also 
Dennis was such a fan of Darby O'Gill, a Disney movie that was state-of-the-art, and in Dennis's mind, way ahead of the curve on developing special effects, and it was done in the late 50s. And he would always call me and say, is there any way you can get some of the black and whites on set, you know, photos of how they did this and how they did that? Well, Dennis became the revolutionary CGI artist who really set the world on fire, beginning with Jurassic Park and on. But so Dennis and Dave Carson, Dave was the, the actual director and Dennis was over him. You know, they had done the, the scenario af, off of our little animatic thing. And they ended up, the one shot that was repeated from the movies was Luke's, you know, Death Star run. And um, in the theaters, seeing that in the Chinese and everything, you're sitting there. And I, I almost felt like I, I was like, you know, as Luke peeled off and then went in, I just said, if only you could get that, that sensation. So I really wanted it in there, even though it was a repeat. And they didn't want to do it because, you know, they like doing something new. So um, Dennis brought down the, their highly detailed animatic. And if they had come up with another approach and it eliminated kind of the the swoosh effect of that I just dreamed of how that we were going to program that to get that that feeling and he said well we don't want to do the same old shot this will be a surprise and nobody I said yeah but there's like two or three things like the hyper warp and everything that everyone has to have that feeling we've all got to know what it feels like when you pull that thing and you're thrown back in your seat and you're thrown into the hyper warp and you've got to feel like what Luke did when he peeled off and went down in there and leveled the the, the x-wing out and so Dennis says, well, if you want to change, you're going to have to get George to agree to do it. And so I went, okay, great. I lose no matter how, because if I win, Dennis hates me. And if we have to do this shot, the guests lose because it's, it's not going to be as fun to program. So we both pitched to George and then George, I think, went off of my feeling that the guests want this. And, I, and he knew that. I mean, he knew shots like the two moons and when Luke is standing there and feels like, you know, I, I, there's got to be something more to life than just this, uh, you know, planet that he's on. And so there were, you know, he would, he put in all these emotional moments. And, and I think he understood when I said, you know, the audience is kind of counting on two or three of these things that are repeats, but we have to have them for it to be legitimate. The rolling ball in Indy became another one of those. Um, so he back to me and then I looked over at Dennis and I went I kind of had that are you going to ever be friends with me again and he he was good with it he you know it wasn't a big deal like they they work all the time on this stuff so it wasn't like the end of the universe this is my four minutes of Star Wars ever you know and so like uh it was really important to me and I thought it was and you know so we ended up changing it and putting that in and uh, but that was the only you know unsmooth moment in the whole thing everybody was was ter terrific to work with. And um, Dave Carson and I stayed friends for, he retired after, you know, going into video gaming and he's now a docent. The last time I, we, we were together, he's a docent at the Walt Disney Family Museum up in San Francisco. And uh, I didn't even recognize him at that point. But he said, well, I love doing this. I love Disney and um, I'm happy doing this. So from director on Star Wars too. A, a docent at the Disney Museum. I think that's great. Get to do what you're, you like to do. And in the, the same Presidio complex as Lucasfilm. Yeah, right across the... You can walk over back and forth, yeah. 
Speaking of Lucasfilm and ILM again, uh, you'd mentioned to me that on one of your visits up there during the development of Star Tours, you, you ended up bringing home a, a souvenir of sorts. Well, yeah, we were up there, you know, we just formed the partnership and we figured we better met, meet their creative guys and they meet us. And so they were giving us this cook's tour of the old ILM facilities. And we came upon a storage shed out in the back and they pulled it open and it was stacked floor to ceiling with square, about one square foot Death Star pieces, you know, that kind of all assemble like tiles to form a surface that they could fly their cameras over. So we said, wow, those would be really great for our little animatic that we're trying to do at Disney uh, to get some ideas for some of the shots. And goes, oh, take as many as you want then. So uh, I think we took about eight or 10 of them so we could make enough uh, space out of it and I still have one here which is pretty cool um, now that it's all become so famous but at the time it was just you know leftover stuff from their work and now it's a holy piece of history here <laughs> so here we are having come full circle in terms of Disney Lucasfilm and, and Fox and you have something that George had been thinking about way back when you have a Star Wars themed, almost its own theme park with Galaxy's Edge. So what does that look like to you going back to when those two entities were initially coming together and, and seeing where it's come to now? Well, as we spent a lot of time just discussing in the, the pre-Star Tours world, the whole culture clash thing was a thing. And there was no conceivable way in a lot of minds that those two had anything in common or would be copacetic you know in in the same place and so uh to just get past that you know when we not only dropped in star tours but uh in 95 we added indiana jones into adventureland and i think it was that was neat and clean because if any if, if adventure has a name it's indie and that was the kind of the touch thing when that came out so bringing him to Adventureland. And Adventureland is a unique area at Disneyland in that it's been constantly renewed with something that keeps extending it, whether it's Tarzan or it's Aladdin or it's the Tiki Room or it's the original Jungle Cruise or it's Indiana Jones. It's constantly staying relevant. You know, we've had a terrible time with Frontierland because uh, up until, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s, you could have conflicts on TV with Indians and cowboys and people throwing tomahawks and people shooting people with guns and hanging and all that stuff. And all of a sudden that became taboo and you had to do it in outer space. So you could do the same things, but you had to be shooting at aliens, not at fellow human beings and so forth. So uh, I think I remember Costner's uh, dances with wolves kind of put the final coffin nail in having a, a land of, you know, rugged cowboys, you know, shooting it. We had, we had a burning cabin with Indians in the front, uh, with a dead settler in the front yard that's shot by Indians and all this stuff that you could just not really have in a theme park anymore. And so, uh, you know, the whole thing of bringing Indian, it just extended the value of Adventureland while Frontierland got more and more weaker and weaker and weaker. So something like Big Thunder that skirts the whole emotional thing with characters but brings to life kind of uh, an era and, a, you know, if you will, a mining culture thing and runaway thrill trains and so forth helps us there, but it doesn't really strengthen the, the fabric. But with Star Wars, uh, being a Western, it's cowboys in space. 
Uh, and if you think about it, 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 that's exactly what's happening. And so I find it's fitting in at Disneyland. At first, it was kind of jarring to me that it would be over at the back of Frontierland. And yet, because not so much the placemaking as the emotional context of the storytelling is so akin with Westerns that when I flow from, you know, the back of Frontierland or the back of our Critter Country area in there, it almost feels very natural. Whereas I think in Florida, it's, it's probably more, I've been there too. To me, it's more jarring to walk from Toy Story Land, which is an, a film idiom, to Star Wars Land, which is another film idiom, but not like real placemaking so much as here you are on the back lot of filming Star, uh, Toy Story and, and over here is where we film you know, Star Wars and over here is the Muppets. Whereas at Disneyland, there's a natural phenomenon that's happening that Big Thunder is kind of dying out and we're in the tumbleweeds and whatnot. And all of a sudden we're coming up against some very crude um, foreign cultural icons. And all of a sudden we're in this kind of vintage cowboy Western thing only in outer space, you know. So I think it works really, really well. I, I think it's going to be an additive for sure to Disneyland and not that the one in the studio doesn't work because the whole concept there is that it's a collection of backlots, a collection of where movies are made, but it's a, it's a different way of looking at it. I've always felt that we have three kind of um, frameworks that we put people into and there's obviously variants on that like the animal kingdom, but basically in a magic kingdom or a Disneyland, you're making magic come to life and be real so it's magic made real so the dreams we see on screens um at disneyland become real so um if you've loved star wars or you've loved indiana jones or you've you know loved peter pan you can walk into disneyland and really experience those those worlds if we do something like epcot it's real made magical so you know the world of science and technology the world of cultures um, come to life there in a way where they become magical. They're better than what you'd, you'd find or is, you know, a lot more entertaining than the clinical nature that you find science and technology to be. At Epcot, they become these magical experiences. So that's kind of the reverse of Magic Kingdom. And then the third one is a studio park where you see how magic is made. And I think that's one where we've kind of blurred the edge a little bit between the Magic Kingdom formula, which is magic becoming real, which is the Walt thing, once upon a time, or in a galaxy far, far away. Uh, that, you know, kind of opening statement is the lifeblood of a Disneyland park. Whereas I think in the studio tour, they were on the right track with things like the Indiana Jones stunt show. Hi, I'm Fred Brown, and I was the stunt double for Harrison Ford, and I'm going to show you today how we did these things. But I think it tends to limit you getting into really fun stuff. So they've kind of had to broaden that to let you do a more Magic Kingdom type thing there, uh, which is what you find in, in bringing Batu to uh, the studio tour, whereas you don't have to worry about that. Under the umbrella of Disneyland, finding Batu and you know the Rise of the Resistance and the Millennium Falcon all residing in that is because they're magical things and they really live for real at Disneyland. And uh, so it, it, to me, it's kind of perfect. But none of us would have ever dreamed this happening when we started it out. And it was like you were breaking the holy rules of Disney uh, culture uh, that was in a totally self-contained studio 
there's there's legends about Walt being asked by MGM to have Gene Kelly dancing with Mickey in uh, I forget what Anchors Away or some one of the MGM musicals. They said there is no way that Mickey Mouse is ever going to be in an MGM film. And so that went to Tom and Jerry. But so that's where the culture came from. And here we are at this point where I think we're much more in tune with the way, you know, commerce and entertainment works today, where the best things belong in the best places. And you can find now all of the things that each cultural generation grew up with residing compatibly alongside each other at Disneyland. And that does not rule out that someday someone's going to make a Western again and help us reinvigorate Frontierland, which has gone lacking since the days of Davy Crockett and Zorro. You know, we haven't had much in, in that land to really strengthen its storytelling. So last summer, we were lucky enough to see a 70 millimeter presentation of the original Star Wars. And I'm just curious, you know, with it having probably been so long since you last saw it in that format, how did it hold up for you? And did that experience do much for you now compared to how it affected you back then? Ah, uh, that's a hard one because I don't ever feel like it's not been part of my life in those 42 years because even, you know, when we were doing the attractions at the park, we would, you know, we would get screenings of it. Or I remember going up to the ranch and seeing half of episode one when it was in production in George's theater. So there was this, you know, constant renewal thing happening. Um, but I am not uh, a purist in the sense that it has to stay as it once was. I mean, I've seen people all over the net complaining that they took the, the wire holding up the lion's tail in The Wizard of Oz was digitally removed and they're going, what a criminal act that is. You know, frankly, I don't want to see the lion's tail in the end of it. So I was completely happy with the adjustments like uh, on Moss Eisley, uh, all the creatures and things walking the streets and everything in the enhanced version. I find more entertaining than going back to where uh, budgets and, and technical skills limited what could be done. And even in things like skies and uh, simple matte shots that were, you know, very grainy and whatnot that were cleaned up and everything. So it was a, it was a treat to see the 70 millimeter original recording just to refresh like what Back then, prior to my being exposed to digital enhanced films, um, what was, uh, you know, I, I just don't feel I can go back to being satisfied with it because, like, I used to listen to records. And when that was all you had, you dialed out on all the scratches and pops and things. And then you got a CD. And, like, there aren't any pops and cracks and all that. It's just pure music. And then... A lot of people, it's funny, are going back to vinyl. I can't understand that because other than great artwork, I love the artwork on a vinyl album, but who wants to sit there and hear as part of their music, the needle drops in? <laughs> well, there's some of that visually in the original Star Wars that they just didn't have the technologies and the, the skills to uh, do that. And a few years back, they redid all the television Star Trek episodes and put in modern special effects. I love it. Because instead of sitting there going, oh, that looks so corny and fake and all that, I'm going, I'm in the story now. I'm really watching the story rather than getting bogged down with um, effects that have long since 
passed out of our acceptability. They were at one time. I mean, you know, we all were, that's amazing. Uh, But what I found was watching it, I'm so accustomed now to expecting, you know, ILM quality, you know, digital effects that um, it's hard to go back. That being said, the overuse of digital disturbs me as much as working as best you can with limited tools. So um, in some cases, you know, doing a puppet or a model, as was done in the final episode of Star Wars uh, 9, uh, is far more preferred to me than overdoing it with digital, uh, you know, uh, work. I think for me, the, the ones that bothered me the most were the Lord of the Rings and the, especially the Hobbit films where it was like, well, we can do one orc, so let's do 50 million orcs. And you take it out of being believable that this is a real conflict or a, a real frightening confrontation when there's just so much that, you know, you're just sitting there waiting for the thing to conclude, which you know it will and that will be successful, but you're not vested in it because you've moved it beyond what humans can really do to something that's off the chart. So I think it's a balance, you know, and I really like the attitude that Abrams or whoever brought back into this last film of like, well, let's use a puppet if that's what should be here because they're charming and uh, there's a a delight in the handheld quality. I I think that's why you're asking me, going back to number one Star Wars and going back to my Harryhausen films, The Seven Voyages of Sinbad from 1958, I can put that on and aside from the grain of the double exposed images and stuff, um, I love every minute of it. You know, I'm, I'm delighting in how beautifully the skeleton is animated and how beautiful the uh, dragon and the cyclops fight and all of this stuff. So uh, it's not that I have one preference or the other. I think both of them have attributes and, uh, and flaws. And I think the key on making digital effects work is being judicious and within the realm of what human beings can understand to be a real world thing rather than moving it into absurdity. And it often, because you can, doesn't mean you should, you know, use restraint restraint and keep it down uh, at the same level that you'd be restricted to by using physical effects. And then I think it can be an incredible tool. So I'm not particularly religious but i think of seeing star wars in a movie theater it's it's the closest thing to going to church for me um it's it's a pure experience and i'd love to hear your thoughts on seeing movies like star wars on the big screen versus the way things are heading now which is at home uh, streaming or whatnot where do you fall on the importance of that theatrical experience well you know there's all different types of content on that's recorded into motion pictures so it's a broad spectrum and going back to my childhood and seeing the 10 commandments on a massive, it was filmed in, um, what was it? Technorama or whatever. Um, and seeing it when Charlton Heston pointing, parting the red sea before there were any kinds of effects movies for science fiction, really here was this gigantic motion picture and it was quasi religious and there was burning bushes and there were staffs that turned into snakes and rivers that turned red and uh, parting of the Red Sea. It was, it was absolutely candy in a giant theater to me. And I went as a six, oh no, I was about eight, I think. And I saw it four times as it ran for a month in our local theater. And it was a four hour movie. So, you know, children that are eight years old don't do that. But the experiential thing of being engulfed in this music and sound around you and the huge images and everything, 
uh, burned into me forever in that way. So we get to Star Wars, and it's at the Grama's Chinese. And I'm lucky enough I can drive to the Grama's Chinese. Here in Southern California, we probably have 2,000 theaters, you know, screens. Uh, in every corner of every, you know, and and the day of going all the way to Hollywood to get in line to go to the Chinese theater to see Star Wars, that doesn't exist because um, the day before it opens, it's running on every screen in every city. And if you go at eight o'clock on opening night, half the demand audience has already seen it, you know, the night before and in the afternoon. So uh, I find it's interesting that there's a group that has created a charity where they still wait in line for a week prior to the opening of the Chinese theater uh, in their tents and everything. And uh, we had some relatives here from out of town. We were giving them a tour and they said, wow, the homeless problems even gotten to the, the main parts of town here. And, and they look, they pointed over there and I said, no, that's the queue for Star Wars opening in a week. Uh, and it was all the tents and everything all along the street there. But anyway, so it still exists, but I'm, I was so in love with that. My whole life has been, uh, from being a kid, I got eight millimeter movies and I had a little projector and I could show them about three feet wide. Um, and remember TVs were like 24 inches at home and very low quality. So getting a VHS of Star Wars and showing it on that in mono or whatever, uh, was not at all like going to the Grauman's Theater to see it or the Chinese Theater. Um, so I would then, I graduated to getting, you know, 16 millimeter movies that uh, you couldn't pick the title. You'd just, you'd say, I got a chance to buy Disney's, you know, Babes in Toyland under the, mar you know, black market things. These were never sold legally. And yet it was such an amazing thing in your home to be able to see a large scale picture. So uh, then all of a sudden we got into being able to digitally project. Um, and I have the Barco system here is exactly a miniaturized version of what's in the Chinese theater. Um, it's 5K projection and I have the Dolby Atmos speakers in the ceiling. So um, as you say, it's an incredibly important thing to me to have that experience. And so I'm, when I go to a theater, if it's not the Chinese where they're very they will literally haul you out and put you in prison for opening a cell phone during the show. Um, but if you go to a local theater, half the younger people are sitting there texting and the glow of their thing is like brighter than the movie screen. And the distractions I find really bothersome. So um, like I said, my hobby, if you will, is trying to bring that experience into the home um, theater area. So it's not the same as watching it on your, your phone or your iPad. It's as close as I can get it to having that experience. And, um, the room we're sitting in seats 12 about, and on Friday nights, we, uh, I love the bigger films rather than sure. I can bring the, the mats down and show you a Walt Disney Snow White or a Charlie Chapman movie movie, but What's really fun in here is is getting the fireworks going all around the room and, you know, and uh, a digital screener or something of the latest hit, you know. And uh, so I'm I made the trek. I've I've been up to the Chinese twice to see episode nine and we've gone with your your uh, in, your mom and, and your uh, stepfather to see um, Indy and everything in the finest theaters around but I'm also really happy to see it as best I can at home here, too. I think what's 
disappeared in the interim for me is viewing it on just a ho-hum regular TV. You know, that that doesn't bring anything special to it. So um, I've kind of avoided that. And yet, you know, if it's a, if it's a uh, documentary or something, you can watch that on an iPad or something and it doesn't. However, if you get something like Free Solo, that's the guy climbing Mount El Capitan, I, I watched that on a pad and then I went, stop. I'm going to buy the 4K of this and we're going to watch it on the big thing. And, and it's a nail biter, whether you watch it there or you see it in a theater. It's those, you know, so you've got to like make a judgment call. If it's an intimate love story or something like that, I think that works fine. You know, it might even be better, more romantic to watch something like that on a, a cozy in front of the fireplace thing. But if it's Star Wars or something like that, it has to be hitting you with all the power that it can. And so you either try to find a way you can get that at home or you go out and see it where it belongs in the theater. Thank you so much, Tony, for having us here in your home and for spending all this time. It's been great hearing your perspective. Uh, I really appreciate it. What can I say? It's great to go down a 40-year-old memory lane here, trip back into some of the funnest times of my life. This is great. Well, I can't thank Tony enough for inviting my wife, mom, and I to his home for an unforgettable night. It simultaneously feels like it just happened, yet somehow took place in another age. I hope we can all be together again before too long and that you enjoyed hearing his stories as much as I did. Until next time, you can check out the episode post on the main site, StarWarsAtTheMovies.com, for show notes and images. You can stay connected on the Facebook page and group, Instagram and Twitter, and by reaching out via email to starwarsatthemovies at gmail.com. Thanks so much for supporting the show and this project. Take care, and remember... Relax. It's only a movie, and it's all for fun. Hit it, R2. My name, you know, is C-3PO. Rapping about space, the new place to go. You can eat all you want and you won't gain a pound because there isn't any weight here like back on the ground. We travel very fast near the speed of light. You can leave in the morning and get home last night. His name is Artu, but you'll never hear him rap. His inventor forgot to give him lips that flap. He'll greet you all and turn on his charms. He'd give you a hug if he had some arms. There's no gravity when you're out in space. It doesn't pull you down or hold you in place. You can run real fast, your feet will fly. You'll be so light, you can jump sky high. New worlds open up when you're out that far. And all you've got to do is wish upon a star.